invite you to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, it's on page, let's see, 984 in these Bibles in the pews as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Uh, this is a very fitting passage. Paul's writing to the Christians in the city of, of Colossae. They've been inundated with false teachers. He spends the first two chapters or the first half of this letter to them dealing with the person of Christ, dealing with some of the errors they had been taught. And now, as is typical in the way he'd write, then in the latter part of the, his letter, he would make practical application of, of some of the weighty doctrine he had covered earlier. And here he's going to talk about our position in Christ. Beginning in verse 1, I'll just read through verse 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Amnesia is a condition where a person experiences loss, significant loss of memory. It's usually caused by brain injury or even shock or various illnesses. I was reading uh, some of the writing of a, a doctor who studies this, and he said it's, it's not just where a person says, I can't remember where I placed my writing pen last week. He said, it's got to be something major, like, I don't remember my address, or I don't remember my name, or I don't remember if I'm married or not. He said, that's amnesia. Often Hollywood makes heroes of those who have amnesia, whether it's years ago when Alfred Hitchcock put Gregory Peck in, into his movie Spellbound, and here was a man with no memory, and as he said, it's like looking into the mirror and seeing only a mirror. And then in 1996, there was Christopher Nolan's movie Memento about a man named Guy Pierce, his character anyway, who has no short-term memory, and he's trying to solve a murder. Or more recently, it may be Matt Damon starring as Jason Bourne, making millions of dollars, saying, I don't know who I am. Some of us suffer from amnesia, but it's, it's spiritual amnesia. Uh, we are all susceptible to such as believers. We forget who we are in Christ, or we let other things crowd in, and we begin to seek our identity and what we do, or what's been done to us, or uh, what we have, or where we go, or we find our identity in something temporal, and that's a mistake. And so frequently, in the New Testament especially, but also in the Old Testament, God, through the authors, his Holy Spirit moved, were writing to remind us of who we are because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to develop spiritual amnesia, you might say. Well, these opening four verses of Colossians chapter 3 are just that. The, the Apostle Paul is, is writing to them and to us to say, I want you to know and remember who you are. And the first thing he says then is, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. 
Now, this is called resurrection language. To be raised with Christ is, assumes, it assumes you've died. You can't be raised if you're still living. You're raised from death. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Paul had described that using the analogy of baptism. Not water baptism, but spiritual baptism. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So there he's describing, once again, not being baptized with water, but the spiritual union with Christ. So when you put your faith in Christ as your Redeemer, you come into union with him. You are buried with him. You are raised with him through faith in the power of God to do so, who raised him from the dead. Now, baptism for most of us, if not all of us, probably didn't cost us anything. Uh, in, in Paul's day, for a person to be baptized, that was a sign of identity that I'm leaving behind my old life. I have a new master. I am trusting in him. I believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, and there could come a high cost to that still that way in many parts of the world. But your baptism would signify that. But notice, he says in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Well, where is Christ? It tells us in verse 1, he's at the right hand of God. We're raised with Christ to the right hand of God, the right hand place. That that is the place of honor. It's the place of privilege. It's the place of affection. If you're invited to a, a banquet of sorts, Um, a very special event and the host says here you're to sit here next to me in fact I want you to sit here on my right even today not as much perhaps as then that we would know that was the place of honor and it's the place of esteem and affection and the Bible often speaks of Jesus's exalted position for example in Psalm 110 The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. In Luke chapter 22, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. In Acts chapter 2, Christ was exalted to the right hand of God. And in Ephesians 1, says which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So if we have died with Christ, he says that, if then you've been raised with Christ, and the assumption is you have, we're seated with him at the right hand of God. Paul is saying, the Apostle Paul is saying, all the privileges, all the honor, all the affection that's bestowed on Jesus is yours too. It really says that. All the honor and affection bestowed on Jesus is also for you as a believer. John Bunyan, years ago, he told how every Christian has the privilege to possess what he called was a magic mirror. Here is the idea. Just imagine holding a mirror in your hand. And on one side uh, is your reflection. You see yourself, and you see yourself with your sins and your scars and your defects. And on the other side, you turn it over, and there's the image of Christ and his righteousness and his perfection and his sinlessness. And Bunyan says that God sees you with all your sin, 
with all your shortcomings, but he sees you through the image of Christ. So all of his perfections are given to you. It means God right now sees you as precious as his son. Do you realize that, believer? If you're a Christ follower this morning, do you realize that? Do you realize that that God sees you with the perfections of Christ when you get down on yourself or when you magnify your own sin and focus on it and feel guilty and get down about it? Do you meditate on the truth that God sees you with the righteousness of Christ? He sees you with Christ's perfect record of keeping God's law in every respect. Now, let's move on. I'm just picking some of the highlights. He says that Jesus is seated, where Christ still, in verse 1, is seated at the right hand of God. Now we move from resurrection language to what was called temple language or priestly language about sacrifices. If you've not read much of the Old Testament, and I wasn't brought up, honestly, reading the Bible. Uh, It wasn't until I got to seminary that I began to learn a lot of Bible content especially some of details like about the tabernacle. Now, if you, if, if you go in our children's Sunday school area, you'll probably see, I would assume, in, in one or more of the classrooms, a, a depiction of the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? Well, after God's people, the Jews, were brought out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt, he had them in the wilderness for an entire generation, and during that time... He told them to worship him in a specific way with the offering of sacrifices in a place, in a a thing called the tabernacle. The reason I say it was a thing, it was a portable tent of sorts. It it had a, we know the dimensions, it had a, a fence that was basically a curtain that went around it. Then inside there was a, a tent of meeting and other things. And so that was the tabernacle, also called the tent of meeting. And the priest would offer sacrifices there of animals on behalf of the people. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament clarifies some of that language when he says in chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now the question, and what Hebrews is showing there, is that he refers to the priest in the Old Testament were standing. But that Christ now, having offered the final sacrifice, is sitting. Why is that? Well, if you remember when a lamb was slain, that that was at, at Passover. Uh, they, they would slay a lamb in memory of, of God delivering them from slavery. And every family for a thousand years, even in the Jewish nation as it multiplied and got into the millions, would do this. I have a friend who years ago was in Africa. He was in the city of Dakar, which is the capital of Senegal. It has about two and a half million people. It's primarily Muslim. And the Muslims at a certain time during the year, would offer up, on a one particular night, would offer up an animal sacrifice. They would sacrifice a lamb. Now, the reason I tell you there were two and a half million people that typically live in Dakar 
is because he said, he said, we have no concept of how bloody and how awful it is when millions of people in the same city slay a lamb on one particular night. And he said the body parts fill the garbage, the blood runs and fills the sewers, and the stench is overwhelming. And Israel did this annually for more than a thousand years. So there was the annual Passover sacrifice. There was not only the annual Passover sacrifice, there were seasonal sacrifices as well. First animals that were born. Then there were the first fruit sacrifices when crops were harvested. And it wasn't just seasonal, there were monthly sacrifices that were offered for every new moon. And then it wasn't just monthly sacrifices, there were weekly sacrifices offered on the Sabbath. And then it wasn't just weekly sacrifices, there were daily sacrifices. And it wasn't just daily sacrifices, there were morning sacrifices, and there were evening sacrifices. And it, it wasn't just at morning and at evening, there were also personal sacrifices for your own personal sin. So it was annually, monthly, weekly, seasonally, daily, morning, evening, personally, and the priest did not sit down. Why? Because he could not sit down. In the Bible, we have the articles that were placed in the tabernacle and later in the temple, and they are described in the most minute detail. We know the materials that were used in the curtains for the tabernacle. We know the details about the seven-branch candlestick. We know about the labor and how big it was that held this large amount of water. We know the dimensions of the temple. We even know what the fringe was made of on the priest's robe. But there was one article of furniture which was never described in the ancient temple. And you know what it was? A chair. There was no chair. Why? Because the priest never sat down and the blood flowed and flowed. Why? Because sin had to be sacrificed over, sacrificed for over and over, and it cannot end. And you have to keep on sacrificing and sacrificing for a thousand years and more until the blood flowed, finally, until one lamb went up to a hill called Calvary. And he died upon a Roman cross, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Access was made into the holy of holies of God, and the fire on the altar went out, and the sacrificing was done. And what was the mark of it? The priest sat down because the sacrificing was finished. And you and I, positionally at the right hand of God, we recognize that we are not still standing asking how much sacrificing will be enough, how much more performing, how much activity can I do, how can I make myself good enough in the sight of God. Listen, you can sit down. You can rest in the goodness of God. The final sacrifice has been made once and for all, and I am now through. You and I should be through with wrestling for God's approval. God, by the work of his Son, has made you acceptable to him, and you cannot add to that work. And the high priest, Jesus Christ, has sat down 
And you and I, in Christ, are with him. Then in verse 3, he says, Set your mind on the things above, and two, not on things above, uh, on earth, for you have died. In what sense have we died? We're very much alive. In the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. If you've been around here for a while, you hear us use the phrase, bad news, good news, to describe the gospel. In a nutshell, that just, that's the summary of what the Bible teaches, that our ancient foreparents, two individuals named Adam and Eve, that they were created by God, they had a perfect relationship with God, no guilt, no shame, they had a perfect relationship with one another. God gave them one prohibition in this perfect place where he had put them to live. They violated that prohibition. They committed a crime against God. God had warned them that if they do that, then on, a, then on the day they would do it, they would die. They didn't die physically. That happened many years later, but they died spiritually. That perfect relationship now was severed. And rather than moving toward God, they ran and hid from God. And so when we come to faith in Christ, who was promised at that time a redeemer who would come, and then we have hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about this one who would come, about his life, about his birth, about his ministry, about his death, and what even the soldiers who would take his life, what they would do. We have prophecies about his resurrection, about his ascension, all of those things. And when we put our trust and faith in him as our redeemer, then we are made alive. We're raised to new life. We were dead, but we're given new life. It's as though we see that our lives are covered by Christ. They are eclipsed by Christ and protect us from the wrath of God. You remember two years ago, did, it, did all of y'all make a big point of watching the uh, eclipse? I think some people here traveled to some of the prime places where you could get the full effect of it as it made its way across central and then the north western United States. Well, do you know the next solar eclipse, that was a solar eclipse, that's where the moon comes between the earth and the sun. It's going to happen again in a month. July 2nd, there's going to be another solar eclipse, but this time you have to be in South America to see it or in the southern Pacific. So make your plans now. You go ahead and but what happens? The moon, in a solar eclipse, the moon moves between the earth and the sun. In a lunar eclipse, the earth moves between the sun yeah, and the moon. And, and so it looks at creating what we call a, a red, a red, a blood moon. And so what we see is how Christ's righteousness eclipses us. You have the righteous wrath of God justly coming upon us for failure to honor him. The penalty is death, and his goodness has come to, to an end in that sense, and Christ's righteousness eclipses. It comes between us and God's wrath. And so by being in Christ through the bad news, good news, and believing that, then his wrath is eclipsed by the righteousness of Christ, and I am protected. He shields me from that. And that's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, meant in Galatians when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So his love for Christ, not my doing, is what stands before God. And because of that, God holds me 
in infinite regard and affection. He loves me, not because of me, but because of his son who stands in my place. But that's not the end. There's more. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's coming back. The trumpet will sound. He will come with great glory, and he will be with him. We will be with him. We will appear with him. So just briefly now, what should be our response? Really, the rest of the chapter is a response. It gets very specific about put to death in yourself, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, greed, and so forth. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, bearing with one another, uh, uh, singing, making melody in your heart, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. He gives all these practical applications. Where do they come? They come from the fact that we know who we are. And our acceptance to God is not based on what we do. And he says in verse 2, Set your minds on these things that are above. Set your mind on them. Marinate your mind in them. It's the idea of let it grab you. If you've ever heard any good news, really good news, that maybe was specific to you, or, or bad news that was very specific to you, and it gripped you, and you couldn't think about anything else, maybe for hours or days, and that's all you could think about? I can't believe this. I can't believe this has happened. Well, that's what Paul wants us to do. With Let these things that you are co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-ascended, co-seated at the right hand of God, let it grip you. And God says, think on this. Hell awaited you in eternity apart from God, but God in his mercy rescued you. And he resurrected you and he raised you. And think about this. When you lie down and when you get up, glory is yours because of Jesus Christ. And it gives us the motivation then to do the things that are described later in the chapter. I'll close with this as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. And it has to do with with just in our experience knowing that we're forgiven by God. R.C. Sproul told of a a man who came to him after I think he had spoken at a conference, and this man came up and said, I have asked God to forgive me of this particular sin over and over, but I still feel guilty. What can I do? Now, let me clarify. It wasn't that the same sin he had repeated several times and was going back and asking forgiveness each time he did it. That wasn't it. It was something he had done in the past once, and now... He continually confessed it, but he said, I don't, I don't think God's forgiven me. I have trouble believing that he's forgiven me. So he was saying, what should I do about this? And R.C. said to him, well, ask God's forgiveness. And the man was like, didn't you hear me? That's what I have been doing. And Dr. Sproul said, no, I don't mean for that sin. Ask God to forgive you for your arrogance. The man said, arrogance? He, in his own mind, thought because he was continually asking forgiveness for this one particular sin, then that was a sign of contrition. It was a sign of humility. And yet Sproul said, it's a sign of pride. You are refusing to give God honor by accepting his promises. And he has told you that he has forgiven you of that. And so to continue to ask for forgiveness for that same thing over and over and refusing to believe it is to question his integrity. 
It is an offense. It is an affront against God. So ask God to forgive you for doing that. When God promises that he will forgive us, we need to accept it. And so as we come to the Lord's table, Christian, remember who you are. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. It's a two-edged sword, able to pierce even down to the motives of our hearts. Now, may Christ himself be honored. May you give us faith to believe in Jesus' name. Amen.